book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, we're picking right back up in chapter 29, uh, verses uh, 10 through 14. It's page 656. Remember, some of the case that I'm making here is that Jeremiah 29, a letter written to God's elect exiles whom I sent into exile. He's now he's having Jeremiah write this letter to them. And it looks to me as if clearly that, Jer that Peter, 700 years later, is taking that letter and showing how this applies to God's elect exiles under Jesus Christ. And the reason why Peter can do that is because God's Word, the Old Testament is God's Word for God's people in every era. And so now we're going to read Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh. Plans for shalom, for welfare, and not for peace, or not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares Yahweh, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have, where I have driven you, declares Yahweh, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And now we turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, which is page 1014, if you're using that blue Bible. We began the series last week, um, Memory, Manners, and Mandates for God's Minority People. Can you tell I wrote that title? Right? Uh, and we're just going to be working our way through First and Second Peter. It's about 24 weeks long, and so... We are picking up now at verses 3 through 9, but this is after all that Peter has said in verse 1 and 2, and I'll make some connections as we go along. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you, have, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. All I've read to you from the Old Testament and the New Testament is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Yes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to your great mercy, you have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so now lift us up to be dazzled by your full-bodied goodness toward us despite what we deserve. Amen. You may be seated. Again, if you're visiting the notes, there's a sermon outline on the back of the worship guide. For all of you, there are three quotations on that in that sermon outline that I will be 
making reference to, I encourage you to have your, keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter 1, and keep your sermon notes open, and I'll think of something else for you to try to juggle too in a minute. So, fitting that I tell an Air Force story, seeing as how it's a Sunday after Veterans Day, but while I was in the Air Force for a season, about two and a half years, I once ran a correctional facility in the Air Force. Now, this was not uh, peopled and populated by hardened criminals like murderers and such, but these were often petty offenders, and my facility was their last chance. I actually ran two facilities. I ran the facility that was a correctional facility, and I ran the other side, the people who failed utterly and were being kicked out, dishonorably discharged. That was called transition flight, but I, I took care of both sides. And so if, in my correctional facility, if after they spent their 30 days with me, they they didn't fly straight, then they would be discharged. And so I ended up seeing about half of my clients over on the other side of the building to be kicked out sometime later. I only remember three people who seemed to have genuinely benefited from their stay in my facility. One of them was a young African-American female. When she came to me, I was given the whole list, the long list of all of her grievous offenses. And all of them, I noticed, were documented by solely her immediate supervisor. And now she was being punished for all these offenses. She looked browbeaten, she looked humiliated, but one of the things that stuck out to me is she was not defensive. Almost every other inmate, or whatever you want to call them, that I had in my facility, they were all innocent, just ask them. She never said that. She was not defensive. She owned the parts that she had done wrong. That struck me. And so during the early days of her stay in my facility, as I would converse with her, I began picking up some oddities about her reported infractions. After a little probing, I came to realize that she was being blackmailed by her immediate supervisor who had been pressuring her for sex. I encouraged her to talk to the sexual harassment folks on base, and I arranged all the connections. She began talking with them halfway through her stay. She was only supposed to be with me 30 days. Halfway through her stay in my facility, I noticed a change in her demeanor. She was not vicious or vindictive, but there was a renewed sense of life and purpose and hopefulness. And so it wasn't very long after this before her commanding officer came personally, which was unusual, personally came and released her early from custody, reinstated her to her position, and relieved her supervisor pending an investigation. I found out a year later that she was doing well and and going for promotion, and her supervisor had been demoted and was being punished. Now, I bring all of that up simply as an illustration of how hopefulness can turn a bleak situation into something brighter. Imagine being in a correctional facility, and all of a sudden, the lights come on and hope comes in, right? It's a change, and you can see it in the way she was in this very bleak situation. And so, my friends, as Peter addresses memory, manners, and mandates for God's minority people, He draws attention to our hope, verses 3 through 9, which we're going to look at today. He draws attention to our hope. Now, we will see in these verses a dance going on in these verses. So, for example, the first point, now and then, verses 3 through 5, we'll see that dance. And then verses 6 and 7, here and there. And then finally, verses 8 and 9, ever and anon. 
Now, those aren't real cool titles, but I hope it gives you the sense that there's this dance back and forth between this moment and what has been promised in the future as well. And that's what Peter is getting at. So let's begin with now and then, verses 3 through 5. So after greeting these believers, pointing out who they are and how they became what they are, that was verses 1 through 2, Peter now explicates what they have both presently and in the future. Since Peter ended verse 2 with a prayer for God's minority people, may may grace and peace be multiplied to you. By the way, I hope you were using that this week and that you will use it this coming week as you pray for one another and others. But as Peter ended that first section with a prayer, he is still in a position of prayer as he moves into verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That pattern is a very common Jewish format for many of their prayers. For example, at the lighting of the Shabbat candles, and so forth, which is, Blessed are you, O Lord, our King, our God, King Eternal, who makes us, and so forth. That's how they begin their prayers very often. It's a good prayer form to get you to learn to look up to lift up and rehearse up all the grace and the mercy, the grace and peace that God has multiplied to us. And that's what Peter is doing in verses 3 through 5. He is actually rehearsing all the grace and peace that has been multiplied to us in a nutshell. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who? And then it goes from there. And so as Peter helps us Remember the good God has done for us. He moves back and forth from now and there or then. So first off, the now. Look at verse 3. According to His great mercy. Not according to how much faith you generated. No, not, not according to your resume and curriculum vitae. Not according to your family connections. Not according to what's in your IRA. According to His great mercy. What happened? According to His great mercy, He has caused us. He has caused us to be born again. My friends, this is why I became a Calvinist. Verses like this one. He has caused us. He didn't wait until we generated our own abilities. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, part of becoming God's minority people, his elect exiles, is because of the Father's great mercy, where he is piling onto us his wonderful goodness that we don't and we can't ever deserve, according to his great mercy. And notice we are, he caused us to be born again, reborn to a living hope. To a living hope. It's a living hope, not a hopeless life. It's a living hope. But I want you to observe how fitting it is that this living hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now think about that. One of my beefs with most of of our camp, the evangelical church's evangelism approaches, is that they almost give, never give any or very little attention to the resurrection. They'll talk about sin, and they talk about Jesus' death being the remedy, and then maybe mention the resurrection. Maybe. 
But notice how Peter puts it at the center. He has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's huge. This last week I was reading in my devotional time, I was reading through the Gospel of Luke. I moved on now to another place in Acts. But I was at the end of Luke, and you know the story. There were two disciples. After Christ's crucifixion, there were two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And do you remember their demeanor and their disposition? They despaired because hope had been crucified, slaughtered, mangled three days earlier. That's what they say when this visitor, this guest who they don't even know who he is, they can't seem to gather who he is, and he comes up and starts talking to them. They say, are you the only one who's been in Jerusalem and doesn't know what the world's going on? The one we thought would be the redemption of Israel was killed on the cross. The one we had hoped in has died. Hope died on the cross three days earlier. There they were in despair, and little did they know Little did they know that unending hope was walking and talking to them, body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair, never to be subject to mortality and misery again. He was right there, begotten again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Further, there's, a, there's the then aspect, and this picks up starting in verse 4. We're made God's minority people because of what is in store for us. Look at verse 4. He's caused us to be begotten again or born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Even though God's minority people become and can become and often do become disenfranchised by the social powers. Even when God's minority people become disqualified and often have been disqualified by the majority culture. Even when God's minority people become dispossessed and often have become dispossessed by their families. Notice what Peter drives at. God's mercy brings us a living hope and a lasting inheritance. Brings us a living hope and a lasting inheritance. Notice how lasting this inheritance is. It is unrotting. It is unable to be gutted by the next market implosions. It is safer, Peter says, safer than any safe could ever make it kept in heaven for you. It's an inheritance that can't be taken from you. Think about it. You cannot lose this inheritance in a corporate takeover. You can't lose this inheritance through an IRS audit or a courtroom fiasco. It is undefiled, unfading. It cannot be taken away from you. Why is that? Because God is keeping. Look at verse 4. God is keeping And guarding, verse 5, guarding you for that inheritance. Who, by God's power, 
are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Think of that. God is guarding us for this inheritance through faith. I love the way John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, picks up the circular aspect that seems to be going on here. And this is the first quotation in your sermon notes. Calvin wrote, As then we are sustained by faith, so faith itself receives its stability from God's power. As we are sustained by faith, faith receives its stability from God's power. And so we are kept, this inheritance is kept for us, and we are kept for this inheritance by the power of God through faith. So lastly, in this point, in what Peter is writing, we should be hearing an echo of the words of God to the exiles in Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for shalom, for welfare, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Therefore, dear friends, though we are God's minority people by grace, never forget that, We are not God's victimized, vanquished people. Because of God's now and then, in verses 3 through 5, we are enabled to shake free from the social and psychological ropes and chains trying to pull us down into the fiery vortex of vindictiveness, violence, and viciousness. I love the way Oz Guinness challenges us in his book, Carpe Deum Redeemed. And you have this as your second quotation. Here's what Os Guinness observes. Those who perceive themselves as victims and respond by portraying themselves as victims end by paralyzing themselves as victims. Those who perceive themselves as victims portray themselves as victims end by paralyzing themselves as victims. We may be God's minority people, but we are not His victimized, vanquished people. And so we don't see ourselves, and we shouldn't see ourselves, and shame on us when we see ourselves as victims. So we see ourselves as victims and portray ourselves as victims. We are acting just like the world in which we live, and therefore become paralyzed as victims. It's a great observation. And so God's now and then move on into the here and there. This is verses 6 and 7. And so still going, doing the back and forth dance, Peter untangles the here and there of our minority condition. Notice verse 6, the very first four words. What are the four words? In what? In this you rejoice. Well, Peter, in what do we rejoice? You rejoice in the prayer of praise and rehearsal that Peter had just completed in verses 3 through 5. You rejoice in the mercy of God. You rejoice in the new life that He has reborn you into. You rejoice in the living hope. You rejoice in the unfailing inheritance. You rejoice in the fact that you and your inheritance are being kept from one another come hell or high water. You rejoice. Wow, that's why we're not victims and not seeing ourselves as victims. In this you rejoice. 
And yet it goes deeper into the here. The rest of verse 6, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. My friends, there are and there are going to be trials in the here. And we shouldn't be surprised. I'll tell you what I am surprised about. when I'm, I'm surprised when I run across Christians who are surprised that there are trials. Sometimes as Christians, we often act, and we're not the only ones, but we often act as if we're entitled. As if we're entitled to the trial-free, suffering-free life. And we're not. That's when I get surprised, is when Christians are surprised. Now sometimes, my friends, honestly, brothers and sisters, sometimes the trials are trials of our own making. They are our own fault because of our own faulty decisions, actions, and reactions. And we need to remember that, that that sin has not been removed yet. And sometimes we go through difficult times because we made them difficult. Now maybe I'm just talking about myself. Maybe nobody else has done that. But that's a sobering moment when you finally realize not everything that happens to you is because God himself is involved in the trial. Sometimes it's like, okay, Bubba, I think God talks this way to me sometimes, I'm sorry. Okay, Bubba, you want to go that route? There are consequences, go for it. Sometimes those trials are our own fault because of our own faulty decisions, actions, and reactions. If you want to get an example, just go back to that Oz Guinness quote. If we're running around claiming to be victims, seeing ourselves as victims, telling everybody we're victims, then don't be surprised when you're treated as a victim. When you run around talking about being persecuted, and we have no idea what it means to be persecuted because we've never lived in Nigeria, or Sudan, or Chad, or, or Myanmar. We run around talking about being persecuted and we portray ourselves as persecuted and we tell everybody we're persecuted, then don't be surprised if one day we are persecuted. Sometimes our trials are of our own making. We need to own that. But the trials that Peter is referring to here are the grieving trials, the trials that come to God's minority people because they are his minority people. They are his elect exile. And so Peter will unpack this layer by layer throughout all of 1 Peter. But I want you to remember that this trial, these trials, are what happened to our Lord. And Peter will come back to this over and over again. But just one, two examples. In 1 Peter 2, 4, Peter says that as you come to Him, a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You're coming to Jesus who is rejected indeed by men, but chosen and precious to the Father. Oh, wow. That's who we're following. So guess what that's going to mean for us, kind of guilt by association, right? Or think about chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, when Peter says that together with Christ, this idea of trial and suffering is our lot. This is what Peter says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. But my friends, there are, there's a purposefulness to these grievous trials that Peter is talking about in chapter 1 here. There's a purposefulness that moves us from the here to the there. Listen to verse 7 further. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. As you heard me mention a few weeks back, and I mentioned it at a funeral this last week, life is full of trials and sufferings. It's part of that equation of sin, suffering, death. Before we came to Jesus, before we were identified with Jesus and united to Jesus, that suffering was the grievous beginning of something permanent. As we suffered without Jesus, as we suffered without hope. But now it is part of the family likeness. Now it is a light and momentary affliction that is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that's what Peter's driving at here. Part of the glory is the genuineness of our faith. Our faith purged and enduringly permanent so that it will be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Even, even the Lord Himself will be praising us and bestowing on us glory and honor. Think about the words of our Lord when He was telling this story in Matthew 25 about coming again, being the king, and dividing the sheep from the goats. Do you remember that story? Dividing the sheep from the goats. And he says to the sheep, what does he say to them? Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to just tell you, these are the words. This is all I want to hear on Judgment Day. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Even our Lord Jesus will praise us on that day. And so that's why Peter stresses that the trials here are actually moving us to there, at the end of verse 7, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is very much what the Lord, is very much as the Lord is promised by way of Jeremiah's letter, Jeremiah 21. I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh. Plans for shalom and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And James reminds us of something similar. He reminds us that faith, when it is under trial, this is that passage we read before the confession of sin, that faith, when it is under trial, faith, when it is being challenged and pressured, is building in us important, durable traits. Count it all joy, my brother. When you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and so let steadfastness have its way with you. So this faith that guides us or holds us in the here and the there. Because I'm talking about this faith and what God is doing in these trials to strengthen and to fortify that faith. I want you to know that this faith is not some kind of standalone, rugged individualism kind of faith. Even here in 1 Peter, it is a, an us faith. It is an all y'all faith. Alright? I'm, I'm, hey, 
It's an all-y'all faith. That's, what the, that's the point of it. It's a community of faith. It's, the fa- it's faith inside the community of faith. And so as Kelly Capek puts it in his book, Embodied Hope, and this is your last quotation in your sermon notes. As Kelly Capek puts it in his book, Embodied Hope, the flame of individual faith weakens when it is alone. But in true community, the fire of faith illumines the night. In true community, the fire of faith illumines the night. This is huge. Now most of you all are here. I assume you're all here. I can see your faces, right? But there are others who are watching in. I mean, just thinking of this faith actually being a communal faith. What has been one of the big uh, temptations during the pandemic? to pull out of the community, to go virtual church. And if you're watching and it's a struggle, maybe you're just having problems at home, you know, kids are sick or whatever, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about someone who makes this a permanent way. You are endangering yourself. You're weakening your faith. And Christ wants you back here in the community of faith so that your faith, the fire of faith, illumines the night. Purified like gold is purified. And so, dear friends, God's here and there now lands us in ever and anon. Ever and anon, and that's verses 8 through 9. And now Peter takes us to ever and anon. Peter reminds us that we're going somewhere. Kind of like that African-American girl, a young lady who was a airman first class in my correctional facility, when she realized that things were being taken care of and she was going somewhere And she was getting out of that, and she was getting in a better situation. It lit her life in so many ways. We're going somewhere. We're headed into a future that cannot be stopped, and it cannot be stomped out. Here's how Peter puts it. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. With joy uh, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I appreciate Peter putting verse 8 in there because he's actually drawing from a scene at the end of the Gospel of John. You may remember this scene Thomas. Thomas did not accept the testimony of several of the eyewitnesses to Christ resurrected. So the other disciples, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he, he said to them, unless I see him in his hands, the marks of the nails and the place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And so on that next Sunday, our Lord comes, body, blood, bones, toenails and hair. And he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put, your hand, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And at this, Thomas then replies heartily, as we should should always reply, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says to Thomas, and he says to all those who are gathered around Thomas, and he looks at us and says to all of us, have you believed because you've seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's Peter's statement here, part of his statement. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. We believe 
in the scientifically and empirically impossible. You cannot redo it in a science lab. We believe in the scientifically and empirically impossible that one man who was as dead as dead could be was raised from the dead on the third day. The very same body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair that was slaughtered on the cross before and bled out there on the cross and was laid in a tomb, emaciated and decimated, that that same man rose from the grave on the third day, no longer subject to mortality or misery again and gloriously transformed. And our love and faith may not ever become satisfied by tangible evidences as we think of those things. But it is rightly, and nevertheless, it is fueled by the eyewitnesses and first-hand onlookers. That's what Peter is driving at. Blessed are you who actually believed our testimony. Believed exactly what we have declared, all of these things. And this, is, this sustains us, and it strengthens us, and it draws us to Jesus whom we haven't seen or touched. It draws us to Jesus with love and faith and joy inexpressible and filled with glory. And it keeps us until by the guarding, keeping grace of God, we obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. In the words of the Lord through Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's kind of 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9 in a nutshell. And so, dear friends, brothers and sisters, verses 3 through 9 is about strengthening the memory of God's minority people before Peter moves on to the manners and mandates. But I want you to remember, never forget verses 3 through 9, because it's all about the gospel, and the gospel is at the heart and in the bloodstream of every verse and every chapter in 1 Peter. Let's pray. Lord God, you overwhelm us with the grace and peace that is multiplied to us. We're so grateful, Lord, that here as we, that we find that we, according to your abundant mercy, we have been caused to be born again to a living hope. And that lifts our hearts and lifts our souls, Lord. When the trials come and they bludgeon us and beat us down, it's too easy to become the gloomy Eeyores. And we have no reason to ever be in despair. You've given us a living hope and a lively inheritance. You're keeping us. You're holding us. You're sustaining us. You're taking us through. May our confidence always be in you. I pray for any who are watching or who hear now or who will hear this later who have been pushing you away, Lord Jesus, who have been spurning you, who have been turning, again, turning their backs to you, I pray that you would even be willing to use this to draw them to you, that they may come to know the living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.